Welcome to Scientific Entrepreneurship, a podcast where I talk to scientists about their entrepreneurial journey. A total of 36,573 metric tons of carbon dioxide, commonly known as CO2, were emitted into the atmosphere in 2018. CO2 emissions are primarily due to combustion of fossil fuels. CO2 traps the heat from the sun and raises the temperature of the earth. This process is called global warming and has bad consequences. To tackle this challenge, 195 countries of the world signed the Paris Agreement in 2015. One of the key goals of the agreement was to reduce CO2 emissions. While the efforts of individual countries to attain this goal is unclear, there is one company in New York that aims to remove carbon dioxide or CO2 one vodka bottle at a time. Founded in 2017 by Dr. Staff Sheehan and Gregory Constantin, Air Company transforms carbon dioxide from the air into the purest alcohols on the planet. The company is a finalist in the $20 million NRG COSIA Carbon X Prize, a global competition to develop breakthrough technologies that will convert carbon dioxide emissions into valuable products. Today, we are joined by Dr. Staff Sheehan, the CTO of AIRCO. Staff has a PhD in chemical physics from Yale University. Staff is a serial entrepreneur and is one of the co-founders of Dream8, a software company, Catalytic Innovations, and more recently, AIRCO. Staff has won numerous recognitions, including the Forbes 30 Under 30 All-Star Alumni, EarthX 30 Under 30, The Green Generation, and the Chemical and Engineering News Magazine's Talented 12. Welcome to the show, Staff. It is wonderful to have you as one of our early guests on the podcast. Before we go to questions on entrepreneurship, I'd appreciate if you tell our listeners about Airco and how you produce vodka. Sure. Yeah. I'm the chief technology officer of Air Company. And at Airco, we produce vodka using electrochemistry. So what that means is we take water and carbon dioxide. The water we get from the tap, the carbon dioxide we get from local CO2 emitters in our area that's captured sustainably. And uh, the water and the carbon dioxide are mixed together in our reaction system. And you could think of it this way. We scramble the atoms in, in H2O and CO2, and we get ethanol, which is CH3CH2OH, okay. and oxygen out of our process. And the, um, the ethanol, we then go on to distill to make various different spirits products, starting with a vodka. If I understand this clearly... So you said there are carbon dioxide emitters? Yeah, so there are a lot of processes out there that emit carbon dioxide. I guess the the biggest one is fossil fuel combustion. If one was to take the carbon dioxide that was being emitted from these sources and make sure that carbon dioxide doesn't get into the atmosphere, but rather gets fixed into different products, that's one way of helping to fight climate change and helping to prevent greenhouse gases from reaching unreasonably high concentrations in the atmosphere. Yeah, that's a great introduction. 
does your process absorb pure carbon dioxide? The process that we have takes in somewhat concentrated carbon dioxide. So we can, we don't need to have really, really pure carbon dioxide. We can take in carbon dioxide that's emitted from a handful of different processes. The reason why we don't air capture is only because it takes more energy to air capture than all of those other processes. Okay. And we're trying to be the most carbon friendly product we possibly can be. And part of being carbon friendly is reducing the amount of energy that it takes to run your process. Sure. That's a great point. I also looked at price of the vodka that you sell and it is priced at a premium. So this being carbon friendly always means being expensive. So right now uh, mm -hmm. it does, you know, that the biggest cost for us is electricity, right? Yep. And we, so one of the biggest reasons why our vodka is expensive is because we're paying for renewable electricity and a lot of it. Yeah, that makes sense. And do you see this price to go down when, when you scale up? Yes. Yeah. So the price is definitely going to go down both because we'll, we're going to be consuming more electricity. So we'll be able to have dedicated, you know, generators. So solar and wind. On top of that, I mean, if, if we were to use, we could obviously have a very cheap price if we were to use fossil electricity, but we don't do that because not, that's not what we're about. The cost of our process itself uh, goes down as we scale it. Um, right now, we're making vodka on very, very small scales. We, we have a, a one reactor and it runs in our, in our Brooklyn facility and its output is that of a pilot reactor. As we scale, the price will go down, both from an energy use perspective and, and from our own process perspective. So we will eventually be able to make, make lower cost products, but uh, right now we are, we are high cost because there is a cost of being sustainable. Sure, I understand that. And yeah, if you make more of your vodka, I'm sure there'll be a lot of people queuing up to buy them too. That's the hope. Let's switch gears to talk a little bit about your motivation to start Airco or any other company in your entrepreneurial journey. You've contributed to preserving or saving the environment either through catalytic innovations or Airco. Where did all this begin? Uh, before that, I started a small software company. And the reason why I started that company, because I was poor very poor. I couldn't really afford to pay for much. I was, uh, you know, the child of a single mom who was a third grade teacher. So I never really mm -hmm. had, you know, you know, much in the way of financial support from family. And so I had, I had as much as my family could provide. And I, and I, you know, credit my mother a lot. My first company was started because I needed money um, okay. to pay for my rent and to pay for, you know, essentially moving out and living on my own when I was in my late teens. Got it. Is that so, Dream 8? Yes. Yep. Okay. I read so, somewhere uh, that you learned programming by yourself. Yeah. Well, I, I, had, a, uh, I had a handful of co-founders with that company. And yeah, we ended up making a bit of money and that, that went decently well for us. And that enabled me to do things like go to college and pay for college. And, you know, uh, helped to just 
let me live. Why does everybody else have a job? I mean, most people are working because they got to pay the bills. I had to pay the bills, and so I worked. I just, I guess I, I found that work by starting a, you know, just a, a small little contract coding shop, which was Dreamate. Cool. So you're not just a scientific entrepreneur, but also a software entrepreneur. Yeah, yeah. It was it was much easier to do things where you didn't need to have laboratories and capital equipment. I will I will say that. But uh, <laughs> sure. yeah, I've I've, uh, I've seen a couple of seen a couple of different angles to the whole startup thing. And I guess so. I started, you know, I started with startups. Uh, no pun intended. Back then, and then I guess I gained that expertise and. Then when I was in college, I uh, really enjoyed chemistry and physics. I, the reason why I started companies in, in the chemistry and physics space was because uh, I had that experience starting companies, and I saw that there were a lot of fields in chemistry specifically that were struggling to uh, have an impact on the planet. Sure. Um, they wanted to. I think uh, things like artificial photosynthesis, that whole field, had a big problem in that it had technologies that were very cool and could help fight climate change, but were not being implemented in a way that would lead to their scale and development. Got it. Do you think that's a problem and not just environmental aspect, but also a lot of the ways that we do science? There's a big problem in science, I think, mm-hmm. that is much more prevalent today than it was, let's say, 20, 30, 50 years ago. And that is, I think science has removed itself very heavily from, you know, from real practical application. Got it. So you're using chemical technologies to save environment. So what came first? Was it your choice to clean up the environment or to be a chemist? The idea was really to to try to clean up the environment. I think one of the reasons why I why I was attracted to artificial photosynthesis, the field in general, mm-hmm. was because it was a way that I could do science, which I really enjoy doing, but also have an impact on the environment, which I believe is the biggest problem that we're going to face in our lifetime. Sure. Sure. And what do you think should come first for someone who's aspirational, should it be their goals or tools and then the skills to reach the goal? I think you could, there's more and more ways to get a cat. If I really had kind of like gone in just thinking about the goal of helping to save the environment, um, maybe I would have gotten into politics. Maybe I would have gotten into, uh, you know, finance. Or maybe I would have gotten into, you know, like green financing and stuff like that. Maybe I would have gotten into several other things. I think the passion for science was probably, for me, the first thing prior to deciding to use it to try to help the environment. Um, I think uh, think that that varies for other people. Um, There are other people who just kind of, they know what they're good at and they decide to use what they're good at. toward reaching a goal. Yeah, that makes sense. And you've spoken a lot about how schooling shaped you. So could you just give us a glimpse of how your grad school helped you achieve these goals? 
I know you started Catalytic Innovations and Airco after your time at Yale. So can you throw some light on it? No, I think, my, I think education shaped me. Yeah. I wouldn't say schooling shaped me because I never let my schooling get in the way of my education. That's a good <laughs> answer. I like that. Yeah. I got into science largely because I enjoyed research and I really didn't like classes. I enjoyed doing research. And uh, when I was in college, they, get, they would give me credit for that. And that meant I didn't have to sit in the class and I could like do something like a, like a fume hood or like actually do work with my hands, like real work, mm-hmm. rather than have to kind of like sit and take notes about philosophy. So I think there was that aspect. And then I think also that that's kind of carried through to, um, you know, at Airco, I'm probably much more hands-on than most CTOs of other startups out there. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, if you come in on any given day, you'll probably see me with like, a drill installing new piping, you know, or like up on the roof trying to fix a leak or, you know, what have you. Got it. Air Company was formed after your time at Yale. Where did you test this idea? Uh, Actually, my garage. I started out with uh, building mini reactors in my garage. My previous company, uh, Catalytic Innovations, also has a facility that has a machine shop in it several other amenities such as fume hoods and schlink lines. Mm-hmm. That, that facility was really useful as yeah. well when I was kind of getting things going. There was a lot of DIY home and mm-hmm. kitchen chemistry involved. The first prototype was made almost entirely in a garage and entirely unsafe. And then, uh, you know, from there, from there essentially was able to contract and subcontract you know, different organizations that I had either uh, worked with in the past that were, you know, uh, companies that weren't universities or, you know, get whatever I needed to get done, done together with a project partner. Cool. That, that really sounds cool. It reminds me of Eric Betzig, the Nobel laureate. He set up a microscope in his living room at one point in time. Huh. Yeah, definitely inspiring. Catalytic Innovations is a startup that you launched soon after your graduation. So what were the essential building blocks to start Catalytic Innovation? Like you've always worked with multiple co-founders, so that could be one of them, right? Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's useful to have other folks that, you know, both for accountability's sake and kind of as a sounding board, even if those people are not, you know, full-time at the company. I think it's always useful to have other people there because it just helps with accountability. And I know some people say, oh, I never would ever want to have a co-founder. And they've been very successful. Sure. But I think they're more the exception than the rule. Uh, unless you yourself are already somebody who has started many things with co-founders and you know already really built a name for yourself, it's real hard to go out there when you don't have a name and say you have all this technology or say you have XYZ, you know, without folks who are going to be there to back you and say, oh, this person's legit. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, I, why I think it's important in science, at least to have co-founders. I think a lot of the most successful ones are ones that had co-founders for, you know, both to lend their expertise, lend their help and for accountability. It's sort of building your brand value, I guess. Yeah. And it's also just like when I'm either doing diligence for someone on a, on a science related company, 
before I am looking into anything like that, you know, I guess there's always like a red flags that I look for when, you know, um, when I, when I see that it's just a solo, uh, scientist founder, CEO, I mean, scientists can definitely be CEOs, but if the scientist is a CEO, you want to have, I think you want to have other founders on board as well, even if they're scientists just to, to help to back, to back the person. I think a lot of the science-based companies are co-founded with the PI backing them. I think they build a good brand for themselves. And I know one from Yale, uh, Craig Cruz's company, Arvinas. Also investors invest in the team rather than the product. Putting a company at a university, it's very important to have a professor from the university that is co-founding it from both an optics perspective, from a negotiating for rights with the university over mm-hmm. inventions perspective. I do think that's a very important thing. Catalytic Innovations was co-founded with Paul Anastas, who's at Yale. If we could highlight it on a podcast, I'd totally highlight this point. <laughs> but we are just talking, so there's no highlighter here. One of the things I wanted to discuss about is the NSF ICOR program. Could you speak a little bit more about it and how it helped in your journey? The ICOR program is very good. If you have a, a good instructor who constructively forces you to, to conduct customer interviews, and I think it's good for three completely separate reasons. The, the first one is if you are a new entrepreneur, it can teach you a lot about starting a company and how that is going to go for you. Second is if you have not been in business before, this applies to a lot of scientists and that's why I think i is is good for scientists. If you haven't been in business before, it'll help to give you insight as to how a lot of these companies that are both partners and potential customers are run and competitors. And then thirdly, let's say you have done a startup before and let's say you know everything you need to know about starting a company and growing technology. The big third thing is, let's say for the sake of argument, and you're on your third or fourth startup and it's in your field, the instructors would push you and they'd make sure you kept on doing customer interviews and kept on reaching out to customers and kept on thinking, who could be my new potential customer? What, you know, what is this new application of my technology? How, how can my technology be applied in this industry? I liken that to them being like a personal trainer to those sorts of people. If you're already really good at, at doing customer interviews, it's still as good to do I-Corps because you have somebody there pushing you to, to do it and you have a, a second set of eyes looking over your customer interviews to make you better. If you have a good instructor, they can be like your, your customer interview personal trainer and then you'd get even more out of it than the folks who are just starting out. Got it. It's like a tone guy getting a six packs or something. Yeah. Or it's like one of those like bodybuilders wanting to build more muscle, you know, it's like, there you go. You emphasized a lot on the customers. So does i arrange meetings with potential customers or do you have to do that? No. So you have to arrange the meetings with potential customers. And I think that that's good because it kind of forces you to go out and talk to people. They push you to do that yourself. So you have to kind of have your own internal motivation to do that. How do people respond to cold emails? I know it's difficult, but 
if you have have to put a number on the response rate, what would that be? I, I would say the minority for sure. I think uh, you just have to keep being persistent. And you have to keep being stubborn. Um, yeah. And in a lot of cases, with a lot of these folks that you're trying to get in touch with, it's not that they don't want to talk to you. It's just that they're busy and they need it bumped up to the top of their email, like that sure. sort of thing. It's like I, you know, it's kind of like if I get, I'm getting hundreds of emails a day. The ones that are not crucial to my job or my business are, you know, are always going to be put on the back burner. And, and mm -hmm. you know, if, don't don't take offense if somebody doesn't get back to you or you email them and you don't hear back, just, you know, maybe a week later, just say like, just bumping this to the top of your email, something like that could go a long way. And yeah, I think you, people have, to, I think you have to be thick skinned as well. Cause then there are people that you're going to reach out to that are not going to want to talk. Um, and you sure. just kind of got to, you know, you got to accept the rejection and move on to the next one. Yeah. I think that's a good attitude to have if you want to be an entrepreneur. Yes. Yeah. It's, I mean, with investors too, you got to, uh, you got to get used to know. In one of your pitches, I heard you mention that you changed your approach. I'm sure you've faced many such challenges or setbacks. How did you deal with them and how did you come out of them? You know, I think in a lot of cases when you have a technology, you, you have a hammer and you're looking for a nail, which is a lot of times the opposite way you're supposed to do things, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. When you're looking at a startup company, um, you're you know supposed to be maybe problem oriented rather than solution oriented. Mm -hmm. So you you really have to be very flexible with you, your product could change into something else, and you have to be 100% ready for that at, at more or less any any time. What we did is we were selling oxidation catalysts, but they didn't sell very well as oxidation catalysts. So we used them to make an anti-corrosion coating, and that worked a lot better. I think that you don't need to fundamentally change the material at all. You just have to find the right application. Got it. And were there memorable and fun moments in this journey? Beginning with your first startup to Aircore right now? I have a lot of memorable ones just from being turned down from people who then later wanted to have me as their prime examples for their, for their boss or for their higher ups <laughs> of an environmentally friendly solution. Yeah. Um, you know, had many, many situations where I had to learn that maybe I wasn't pitching something the right way. Maybe it was something that the, that the client wanted, but maybe I just, it wasn't pitching it the right way. So I'd change my pitch and it was really a communications problem for me and re not really a science problem. And, so, uh, yeah, many, many situations like that. Sure. I have one last question. I want to remove a couple of pounds of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And how can I buy Aircos vodka? Because I tried to buy it on drizzly.com, but they wouldn't deliver it to Pittsburgh. Yep, we are in very limited production right now. So we're only, it's only being made available at a handful of bars and restaurants in New York City. Okay. Um, it is eventually going to be uh, available re via retail as we scale up. We're currently building a 10x scaled up version of our synthetic system oh. and that one is going to be going online later this year so uh that's really when we're going to be able to hit retail but for right now we're in very limited supply one of the important things though for for the near future only going to be available in new york city because in 
spirits and wine and a lot of alcohol production in general, one of the biggest carbon emissions is the transportation from oh, where wow. they're produced to where they're consumed. Yeah, it can be as high as 50% of the carbon emissions of a bottle of vodka could be just from its transportation. And there are a lot of published life cycle analyses that have gone over this. So it's pointless for us to do all this work to be carbon neutral if, we're, if we stick it on an airplane. So we are, uh, we're, we're planning on launching uh, distilleries that are sited in cities. Right now, I think we're starting in New York City because that's the both the most challenging and the most populous. Sure. So we can be the most carbon negative here. But as we scale, we're planning on going into other cities with their own distilleries so that it's consumed close to where it's made and we get to minimize those carbon emissions of transportation. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I look forward to a distillery in Pittsburgh soon, or I'll probably come to New York and get a glass of vodka from one of those bars. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, we want to put them in every major city in the U.S. You know, obviously, we want to grow this so that so that it has both the biggest potential to to reduce carbon dioxide emissions, mm -hmm. um, but also get it into more people's hands. Sure. Thank you so much for sharing your experience with us. We really enjoy your motivation to solve environmental issues, and wish you good luck on behalf of listeners. I want your team to grow big and produce more vodka so I can enjoy it and all the listeners can also enjoy it. Thank you, Steph. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. You're welcome. Well, that was the end of our conversation with, this, with our second guest. I will talk to you in two weeks with another scientific entrepreneur. In the meantime, you can look for podcast updates on Twitter at Leverage Science. Have a good rest of your week.